Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research, trivia, and curios from our own record collections to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the world's finest podcast for music that makes you want to rip out your own eardrums. We're going to start this episode with a little trivia. Okie dokie, Joe. I've got a little trivia for you. Uh, We're going to do what I'm calling Rock Critic Mad Libs. And so I'm going to read a real piece of rock criticism, and I'm going to leave out one word or phrase. So you can score points in two different ways. You can A, guess the correct blank, or you can make up something better than the critic put. I'll give you points either way. Okay. All right. Let's warm you up. This was uh, somebody writing about Queen. said, they sound like a bucket of stale what? Bucket of stale? Um, what would be in a bucket? Fishy. (laughs) Things would be in a bucket. Livers. Oh, pretty good, pretty good. No, the correct answer is a bucket of stale urine. A bucket of stale urine. How do you know when urine has gone stale? Almost immediately. Okay. This is about Creedence Clearwater Revival. I'd rather hear an old man what than listen to CCR's rhythm section. Clip his toenails. Oh, pretty close. I'd rather hear an old man cough than listen to CCR's rhythm section. Is that good or bad? Oh, it depends on the old man, I suppose. Is it like TB? (laughs) Black Sabbath. They said Ozzy singing sounds like whining about what stuck up his nostrils. A bat. I think I'm going to give you points. That is better than what the critic said. He said, the singing sounds like whining about tampons stuck up your nostrils. So I think I think you get the points with bats for that one. Low bar. This one, you have to uh, really think about the name of the band. This is about bad English. Blank is the least of their problems. English. Pretty close. Grammar is the least of their problems. I think I'm going to give you points for that one. That was pretty good. Uh, Grammar's really good. This is about Neil Young. The critic said, He says less eloquently what kicking the blank would say. Hobo. (laughs) Uh, The correct answer is coffee table. He says less eloquently what kicking the coffee table would say. I would say hobo wins in that case. Good job. You get the points. Thank you. Thank you. Circle gets the square. All right. Daft Punk. These guys are so blank, I want to force feed them and cut out their livers. Repugnant? 
Ooh, correct answer is French. They're so French. Okay. I think that those are synonyms. <laughs> All right. Here's the Eagles. Regarding the lyrics, these boys like a lot of malaise with their blank. I'll give you a hint at rhymes. Poorly constructed phrase. Correct answer is mayonnaise. They like a lot of malaise with their mayonnaise. All right, Bell and Sebastian. These songs are so sticky, they should be hanging from what? A beehive? Ben Stiller's ear. (laughs) 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 These songs are so sticky, they should be hanging from Ben Stiller's ear. And then my favorite part is, right after he says, and I don't mean that in a good way. Last one. It's about the arcade fire. They're still making music devoid of wit, subtlety, and danger. And now they're really into blank. We should all be repulsed. Crawlers. (laughs) Correct answer is bongos. And now they're really into bongos and we should all be repulsed. But I'm going to give you points for crawlers. Thank you very much. All right, and so that was Rock Critic Mad Libs. Okay, good job. I am going to go next with my audio quiz, and our show today is about bad musicians. And one thing we are not including in that are celebrity musicians. So I thought I'd make up for that with this quiz. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play nine short clips of celebrities singing songs and i'd like for you to tell me the name of the celebrity singer if you can i'd love to see if you can get the name of the song and even better yet the name of the album that it was on okay but that's not part of it just the name of the artist is is plenty i'll see what i can do all right here we go track one Hey, what's up, Track two. The colors of the rainbow. So pretty in the sky. It's also on the faces of people passing by. Track three. When the girls start to strut, you could look at them, but you shouldn't do that. The girl dress is just a pity, not just there to cover her kitty. When me a fling it up, you better not be back it up. When me a dash it up, make sure you block it up. Track four. It takes all kind to help you find confidence in yourself. You can count on some as a rule of thumb, but most you can depend. When things get hot and you're in a spot, your parents are your friends. Track five. I wonder why nobody don't like me. Oh, is it the fact that I'm ugly? I wonder why nobody don't like me. Oh, is it the fact that I'm ugly? I leave my own house and go. My children don't want me no Track more. six. You keep saying you got something for me 
clips I've ever done. How do you think you did? A lot of Hollywood stars right there. There's a couple, I mean, there's a couple I think I know for sure, and a couple that I have guesses on, and a couple I don't have any clue. So, you know, mixed. That's about what you want to have in this, I think. Yep. There's one I was really hoping you were going to play, and you played, so I was excited about that. Oh, good. I think you played. I guess I shouldn't be, shouldn't be so confident. I guess we'll find out. We're going to play them again at the end and give answers. Yeah, we'll play those again at the end of the show so that you can hear which celebrity mangled which song. (laughs) All right, you ready to get the shit show on the road? Yeah, let's do it. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Tipping his top hat jauntily askew and chewing ferociously on his cigar, impresario Willie Hammerstein paced the floor of the failing theater that his father entrusted him with. The Olympia Theater was weeks away from bankruptcy, and Hammerstein had just one last hope to save his floundering Broadway venue. He had happened upon a scathing review of an act called Something Good. Something Sad, by five orphan sisters pluckily named the Cherry Sisters. The critic gleefully tore into the total ineptitude of the sisters in all aspects of the traveling morality vaudeville performance. They couldn't sing. They couldn't play their instruments. They couldn't dance. They couldn't act. Hell, they could barely speak. They were the pits, thought Hammerstein, chuckling to himself. Their saccharine, patriotic, and religious songs and skits were as infantile as they were incomprehensible. Their shows were a patchwork of gimmicks, featuring poetry recitals, drum-pounding sessions, fake hypnosis, living sculptures, morality plays, questionable dialect usage, extended mouth-harp solos, and climaxing with a mock crucifixion of Jessie, the youngest sister, which was super classy. 
Beyond all this, the sisters were homely and dressed in homemade tatters stitched together from other people's old curtains and dish rags. Purposely bad vaudeville had been done before, but the Cherry sisters took their folly to a new level. But what really enthralled Hammerstein was how one newspaper described the people's response to the cherries. It said, When the curtain went up, the audience saw three creatures surpassing the witches of Macbeth in general hideousness. Their long, skinny arms, equipped with talons at the extremities, swung mechanically, and anon were waved frantically at the suffering audience. The mouths of their rancid features opened like caverns, and sound like the wailing of damned souls issued therefrom. Hammerstein felt a twist in his stomach, thinking of the crowd's reactions. They loved to loathe them. The boos and jeers weren't enough. Eventually folks would throw rotten vegetables, cigar butts, prophylactics, rotten eggs, fresh livers, tin boilers, even dead cats at the group. How bad would you have to be to have a dead cat thrown at you? Meowful. Other articles told of how crowds would be brought to riot during their performances. One overzealous man sprayed a fire extinguisher directly at the googly-eyed, buck-toothed girls to make them stop. County sheriffs would often have to de-escalate the rowdy mobs who were amped up after seeing the wretched anti-entertainment. Most importantly, Hammerstein pondered, why was it that the crowds kept growing? Everyone seemingly wanted to see this disaster of a vaudeville freak show. Hopefully, he thought, this holds true in New York. The front door slowly crawled open. He watched as, one by one, the lazy-eyed sisters looked at the grandeur of the faux French Renaissance statues, walls of box seats, and giant chandeliers of the decrepit theater. As he gawked at the four young woman-like creatures dressed in rags, their maws agape, he knew he had made the right choice by bringing them to Longacre Square. If they don't want the best talent, Hammerstein thought, maybe they'll want the worst. His gambit worked. The Cherry Sisters show opened on November 16, 1886 and ran for six straight weeks as a smash success. A review in the New York Times simply stoked the fire by dubbing the act as four freaks from Iowa who were more pitiful than amusing. And that watching the show made clear the effects of poverty, ignorance, and isolation are much the same all over the world, and the Cherry Sisters exhibited every one of them with a pathetic frankness. Apparently, though, this is exactly what the turn-of-the-century population craved. The Olympia was saved, at least temporarily, by the most notoriously bad vaudeville act ever to disgrace the stage. The Cherry Sisters' miraculous rise to the top comes from a place of absolute desperation. Addie, Effie, Ella, Lizzie, and Jessie were farm girls from Marion, Iowa. Both their parents died in short succession, and their only brother, who might have been able to take care of the farm, flew the coop to Chicago, never to be heard from again. The gals hatched a plan to make their own variety show, a cherry jubilee, if you will to raise some money to get to the 1893 Chicago World's Fair and perhaps locate their wayward sibling. With no training nor experience, a complete show was created. They played for some locals who responded with confused but polite applause. In Iowa, that may have simply been the response to just about everything, though. 
The sisters mistook these social niceties for rousing approval and took the show on the road. At first, to other small-town venues, but eventually farther and farther away where audiences were less forgiving in their feedback. Naturally, each show bombed. Cherry-bombed. But still, they made some money and continued onward. Crowds grew, mostly to see the spectacle and work on their moldy vegetable aim. Like chucking little pieces of dripping leprosy. After some particularly nasty volleys of turnips and rutabagas, kindly promoters took pity enough to erect a mesh wire in front of the stage for the performances. Their legend grew with every performance and each critical write-up, which is how Hammerstein eventually cherry-picked them to come to New York City. After their successful stint there, they continued their rise, but started to get upset at the nasty reviews in the papers. Finally fed up, the sisters sued the Des Moines leader for libel. The case made it all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court, also known as the Corn Council. There, the following declaration was made, quote, If there ever was a case justifying ridicule and sarcasm, it is the one now before us. A dramatic critic should be allowed considerable license in such a case. This case was hugely important to the establishment of the right of the press to fair comment and laid the groundwork for this podcast to make hundreds of jokes at the expense of Billy Joel. Despite losing the case, and maybe because of the media spectacle it generated, the act continued to be highly profitable for the family. They kept on touring to sold-out crowds for years, and, as musicologist Erwin Chusid said, they had never lost or found a note. By the early aughts, it was said they had amassed $200,000. Their moral standing held true throughout their flash-in-the-pan success, with the girls allegedly never succumbing to the nightlife, drinking, promiscuity, or cussing. They even avoided Coney Island because of fear of glimpsing bathing suits. Yikes. None of the sisters married, and they even boasted of not having ever been kissed. Sadly, and mercifully, no commercial recordings were ever made. Jessie cut a single demo for her showstopper Fair Columbia, but it was lost to time. The show eventually ran its course and the money dried up. The sisters, one by one, fell to typhoid fever, childless spinsterhood, and failed political campaigns to be the mayor of Cedar Rapids. The short-changed and commingled genetic line died out in the 1940s. From the sincere beginnings to the opportunistic endgame, the Cherry Sisters were inelegant pioneers, accidental comic geniuses, guerrilla marketing innovators, novelty icons, feminist heroes. They were able to find success on their own terms without compromising their own values puritanical and exhibitionist. They game the system. They created controversy without being controversial. And they just had to bravely suck some projectile cabbage to do it. Embracing their own deficits in a way where the ends far outweighed the pitiful means. And hey, free cabbage. Nobody intentionally builds cathedrals to mediocrity. Music criticism, and really society in general, is often preoccupied with defining, declaring, and debating superlatives by using any means at their disposal, subjective to scientific. Look at the vast array of books, articles, lists, blog posts, and podcasts 
dedicated to rock's most important bands or the world's greatest albums, or even the musician with the most substantial mustache. We seemingly have a compulsive need to declare a winner, to pin an imaginary medal for a make-believe achievement of unquantifiable greatness. What we rarely do is look to the opposite side of the bell curve, to the outliers at the bottom, that are equally rare as their counterpoints at the apex, but not nearly given as much consideration for how unique they truly are. Those who stand out because of their outstanding failure and shortcomings. The best of the worst. The dregs of the entertainment community. In this episode, we're going to explore the pop stars who found fans in spite of, or perhaps because of, their gross musical incompetence and who were demonstratively, aesthetically, just plain bad. The small handful of musicians who would be, under all circumstances, considered conventionally terrible at music, yet managed to attain success. Those who, through sheer will or perhaps complete ignorance, managed to make a name for themselves, and those who were exploited, mocked, and enjoyed ironically, but still fought to the top. We seek to understand first what the motive is behind their drive. Were they sincere? Delusional? Were they okay with being a novelty and laughing along with their hecklers? Did they even know it was happening? Or did they just want to cash in by any means at their disposal? And secondly, we're going to explore the motive of their audience. Did these people truly enjoy these exhibitions of atrocity, much like watching a train wreck? Or did they get off on holding this secret over an oblivious performer? And finally, what sort of unhealthy dynamic is formed from the strange relationship of the two? So, cover your ears and turn down that volume. Put the kids to bed and the dogs outside. Check your gag reflex and pour yourself a stiff drink. You're going to need it. We head off to a land where pitches can't be carried in buckets, where the notes are flatter than a Kansas pancake, where all tunes are out and all tones are deaf. You'll soon be longing for the heavenly bliss of nails down a chalkboard. It's amateur hour, and this time we don't just mean us. Today we explore the history of famously bad musicians. There certainly is a long history of people gaining wide recognition for being bad at their jobs. Director Ed Wood's singular dedication to his campy movie craft brought him acclaim as the king of B-movies. Perpetually dumbfounded shortstop Mario Mendoza has a batting average threshold line that separates barely serviceable batters from the totally incapable washouts. Or the poet William McGonagall, dubbed in jest as William the Great who managed to keep publishing and performing his literary dribble despite being subjected to cherry-sister-like angry mob fruit peltings. 
He once fell victim to a prank where he received a letter stating he had been granted knighthood. He hadn't, but still ended up calling himself Sir until his death. In the realm of music, it seems especially hard to gain notoriety for being bad, because we all can pretty easily become a bad musician. Most of us already are. Just take up an accordion with no training, or become a master bagpiper. Still, there are a few fascinating case studies of how bad musicians make it to the big time. But we want to start with setting some parameters. Bad music represents a substantial portion of all music, and while there's no accounting for taste and often no explanation for how and why music gets made, most music just tends to regress to the mean and is boring, forgettable, and disposable. We are truly seeking musicians who are almost universally accepted for not having artistic value outside of the cultural phenomenon for achieving fame without any talent of note. We are not speaking to musicians who prove to be so unusual that they can be seen as visionaries. Your Yoko Ono's with her bizarre art pop, or Tiny Tim's Helium Americana, or Albert Eiler's Disintegration of Jazz. While scores of music fans may be dismissive of these artists' talents, and can't stand to listen to anything so off the beaten path, there is no doubt that these folks present a uniquely focused musical product. As we mentioned in the trivia, we are also ruling out albums by famous people who had no business making music in the first place, like William Shatner's three-minute Baroque melodramas or Shaquille O'Neal's grotesque approximation of rap music. Don't get us wrong, this is horrid swill of the most unlistenable sort, nearly Billy Joel level. But the pre-established fame ensured a built-in fan base. We are focusing on the unknowns who rode their amateurish performance to the top, not superstars' pathetic cash-grab freefalls. We're going to begin our journey to the tone-deaf depths with the infamous Florence Foster Jenkins, a bald, syphilitic socialite described as the world's worst opera singer. No one before or since has succeeded in liberating themselves quite so completely from the shackles of musical notation. Somehow, she finds her way into the height of New York class and culture with devotees that include Cole Porter, Enrico Caruso, Barbara Streisand, and David Bowie. Bowie treasured her record and has said she had and was blissfully unaware of the worst set of pipes in the world of music. And he sang with Mick Jagger. Where the story of the Cherry Sisters starts with necessity, the story of Florence Foster Jenkins starts with overabundance. Born into an incredibly affluent land-barren Pennsylvanian family, Florence showed an interest in music from an early age. Though there is some debate about how talented of a pianist she actually was, somewhere between a prodigy and a Gary Bradford. She did perform a recital as Little Miss Foster at the White House for historical hottie Rutherford B. Hayes. She desperately wanted to study music in Europe, but her dad, unimpressed with her abilities, refused to fund her dreams. So, she found herself a sugar daddy in Dr. Frank Thornton Jenkins and eloped with him at the age of 17. After a few years of marriage, they split, 
leaving Florence Foster with nothing but her surname and a case of the clap. She supported herself by giving piano lessons and spent some time studying at the Philadelphia Academy of Music. Her father keeled over in 1909, leaving her a sizable inheritance to blow. She took her mother and left for Manhattan to try to make inroads with high society types. Around this same time, Jenkins suffered some sort of hand injury. Some believe it was syphilis-related complications that completely prevented her from playing piano. Still passionate about music, she pivoted to singing. She decided she was bound for greatness as a coloratura soprano and took singing lessons. Her instructor, who surely was a heavy drinker and probably deaf, possessed no magical skills that could turn the sounds emitted from her mouth into a cohesive auditory pattern that could be mistaken for singing. Her voice was like a piano falling down the stairs, crushing a yodeler with a recent tracheotomy. As biographer Donald Collin put it, her operatic style was a gurgling mess of glottal stops, an absence of vibrato, hit-and-run register breaks, the sliding up and arrival just short of a climactic high note, transforming the letter R into a vowel, and the completely unintelligible diction. Money can't buy you a good voice. It can buy you a lot of friends to pretend you have a good voice. Jenkins began programming music recitals at various women's groups and social clubs. She would sneak in her own performances, which were met with astonishment and then lavish applause, knowing that Jenkins was providing huge contributions to their organizations. At one point, she even started her own social club, the Verdi Club where she would regularly schedule herself to perform for the incredibly friendly audience. The enthusiasm fueled Jenkins' ill-placed confidence, as did a relationship with an unemployed British actor, St. Clair Bayfield, who had become a sort of common-law husband-come-manager. He would help write, produce, direct, and even act in her specialized shows. For decades, she would continue to perform in increasingly lavish productions, her costumes were gaudy and bizarre. She'd go from Brumhilda to Carmen to a crowned angel. Later in life, she was completely bald, possibly from the arsenic and mercury treatments, so her wigs became somewhat of a New York City legend, like Lou Reed. It is also theorized that those treatments were somewhat responsible for a fragmented mindset that didn't seem to recognize the snickering sycophants all around her. She would continue to perform to invitation-only crowds. Occasionally, there would be critical reviews, but those were often glowing, as they were usually written by her friends, or possibly even herself. The operas she chose to perform were some of the most challenging, well beyond her skill set, making it all the more comical. 
Her normal accompanist, Cosme McMoon, would constantly try to make adjustments to compensate for Jenkins' tempo changes and rhythmic inconsistency. By almost all accounts, she completely flubbed anything she attempted to sing, but it never stopped people from admiring her from their seats. Eventually, it appeared there was something akin to a Stockholm Syndrome developing in Jenkins' crowds. They truly started to love and appreciate Jenkins' pure glee on stage and enjoyed the show as a spectacle. As one poet wrote of her shows, they were never exactly an aesthetic experience or only to the degree that an early Christian among the lions provided aesthetic experience. It was chiefly emolatory, and Madam Jenkins was always eaten in the end. Cole Porter was said to have had to pound his cane into his foot to keep him from laughing when she sang, but still, he never missed a show. Audiences would go to great lengths to protect her ego, coughing or cheering to cover others guffawing at her pitch-destroying singing. People loved Florence Foster Jenkins. There's even a story about Tallulah Bankhead, the actress, going to one of her shows just because she happened to be in town, and... She started laughing so uncontrollably she had to be escorted out of the theater. <laughs> yeah, they became like kind of desirable things to get into. Like, you know, people really wanted to be invited to these shows. A debate rages on how much Jenkins understood her own limitations. It's certain that those around her went to great lengths to insulate her from negative reviews and unfriendly audiences. Many of her closest compatriots would acknowledge her complete and utter belief in her skills. McMood even said her delusion of grandeur extended to the lengths that she thought her audience swooned for her performances like teenagers would for a young Frank Sinatra. She liked to compare herself to other sopranos of the era. It is said that she only heard radiant tones expelling and vomiting forth from her mouth, like God himself was vacating her lungs as quickly as he possibly could, like explosive diarrhea. (laughs) Others believed that she was sane and quite aware that she possessed a less-than-angelic voice. Towards the end of her life, she even seemed to acknowledge her own deficit, saying things like, People may say I can't sing, but no one can ever say I didn't sing. Or would it be like, People may say I can't sing, but no one ever didn't sing. She clearly loved to entertain, and at some point it didn't really matter what she thought of her talent. She simply believed in herself. In 1944, she finally relented and agreed to sing in a public forum, her dream locale, Carnegie Hall. The tickets were sold out two weeks before the 76-year-old was set to perform, and 2,000 people were turned away at the door. The show, fully in the style of Flofo, was an unprecedented success in its hilarity and joviality to the audience. On the other hand, critics destroyed the show in reviews, with the New York Post proclaiming, Lady Florence indulged last night in one of the weirdest mass jokes New York has ever seen. The negative reviews were devastating to Jenkins, who believed that the audience had truly enjoyed her performance. It was difficult for her to accept any criticism after years of surrounding herself with people who only praised her singing. Florence Foster Jenkins suffered a fatal heart attack five days after her maligned swan song. 
Fortunately, her story does not end there. In fact, she's had a resurgence in recent years as a subject of a Broadway play, a biography, a documentary, and two movies that came out all within a span of six months. She's also had her music recently reissued. In 1941, Jenkins went into Melatone Records to record a Vanity album. During the sessions, the delusional diva refused to do any retakes or overdubs, as she believed she'd nailed them all on the first take. In fairness, she might have recorded hundreds of takes, and never, ever improved. At first, she only sold her records to friends for an exorbitant amount of $250 per each 78. But eventually, the recordings would see a full-length issue in 1962 on a record called The Glory... Of the human voice. And once more in the 90s, as a compilation called Murder on the High Seas. It's truly amazing that we can hear a glimpse of the majestic glory of FFJ's auditory massacres. The legacy of Jenkins can still be appreciated today. Most importantly for our review of musical monstrosities was the small army of like-minded off-key comrades that were brought forth in the wake of Madame Jenkins. Now, These records were certainly more self-aware and tongue-in-cheek, but their existence ensconched an element of new wave novelty records in popular culture, similar to the laughing records of the 1920s a whole wave of mid-century comedian musicians started performing badly for shits and giggles and cash. The sleeve of the album Sing It Again, Sam, the inimitable song stylings of Sam Sachs, boasts that Sam endows even simple lyrics with new meaning. That meaning is terror. Sachs' endowment is pure terror. Released in the 1960s on Arliss Records, It is impressive for the very fact that Sam fails to hit the correct note every single time. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Here's his version of Old Man River that sounds as if the eponymous character is drowning himself again. And the only one in the audience is Phil Collins. Old Man River by Sam Sachs. On the Mississippi, we all worked while the white folks play. Pulling them boats from dawn to sunset, never get rest to the judgment day. Don't look up and don't look down. Don't ask, make that white boy strong. Bend your knee and bow your head and pull that rope until you're dead. Jonathan and Darlene Edwards were a New Jersey lounge act who made a name for themselves by burbling through popular hits on the 1957 album The Piano Artistry of Jonathan Edwards. The album has one of the best covers featuring a beautiful lady looking hungrily at a piano player with two right hands. In some secluded rendezvous 
The duo was actually a gag by big band arranger Paul Weston and his wife Joe Stafford that eventually turned into several albums across decades. After being inspired by a bad piano act at a Key West hotel bar, Weston would occasionally take on a persona of an incompetent lounge lizard while entertaining at Hollywood parties. The act was always a big hit with the hipsters, and eventually, Columbia Record Execs asked him to put out an LP. His wife was a singer who had put out a comedy record before under the name Cinderella G. Stump and was the ideal off-key compliment to the hackneyed pianist. The album was a great success, leading their bewildered alter egos to several more albums, a myriad of television cameos, a Grammy, and eventually this chilling cover of Stayin' Alive, which is said made the brothers Gibb nauseous upon first listening. Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk, I'm a man's gal, no time to talk. Music loud and fellas warm, I've been kicking round since I was born, and now it's all right, it's okay, and you may look the other way. We can try to understand the New York Times effect on man. Whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive, staying alive. Feel the city breaking and everybody shaking, we're staying alive, staying alive. was actually quite a feat for the duo to pretend to be so dreadful, as Weston was known to be an incredible piano player and Stafford had perfect pitch. Their success was crucial in keeping the flame of bad music comedy relevant in the 1960s. Silent film era actress Leona Anderson decided to finally make noise in 1957. She probably should have stuck to silence. Her album, Music to Suffer By, is the shrill deal. As one reviewer aptly put it, the singing could be either seizure-inducing or seizure-removing, depending on how you place your speakers. She apparently set out to point out the ridiculousness of opera singers, but eventually found far more fame for her singing than she ever did for her acting, with the help of comedian Ernie Kovacs. Here's her song about fucking cheese, Limburger Lover. Makes me hungry. And horny. French-Canadian chanteuse Madame Saint-Ong, whose vocal fragility is reminiscent of a hippopotamus dying in childbirth, released one mysterious album which appeared in Quebec somewhere in the late 60s or early 70s, unfortunately setting into motion the career of Celine Dion. We can only hope humans in the future figure out the technology to come back Terminator-style, destroy Saint-Ong's record, and save mankind from My Heart Will Go On. The reality of the record was that it was the brainchild of pop singer Tony Roman. Roman recorded the album in a single night and apparently tickled the singer in mid-performance to achieve those most uncontrollable of notes. 
This also explains why the album sounds a lot like When You Set a Tickle Me Elmo Doll on Fire. But it was none other than the fabulous Mrs. Miller that bridged the gap of novelty song and real-person music. Mrs. Elva Miller may very well be bad music's gateway drug. She complements both Florence Foster Jenkins and artists we'll be talking about next. She was certainly the most well-known with an enigmatic top 10 album in 1966. There's no evidence that Miller knew of Jenkins, and her biography leads me to believe that, even if she had, she most likely hadn't listened to her. Born in 1907, Miller loved singing from a childhood on, much to the chagrin of her parents, and her friends, and any townsfolk who heard her. But she persevered, joining her church choir, where even God had a hard time forgiving her. She sang hymnals and operatic pieces, and was so confident she funded her own record with the help of Fred Bach, called Songs for Children. The record was sent to orphanages because their lives weren't bad enough already. Bach encouraged Elva to modernize her sound, and they recorded a few songs like Downtown, which Fred then sent off to record labels. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go Later in his career, Fred Bach would produce albums by Little Marcy, who we discussed during our Music for Dummies puppet episode. So, he's to thank for a lot of bad music. Hero of Bad Musicologist A radio DJ friend of Bach started playing these more modern Mrs. Miller songs around 1960, and even included her on a comedy album he made in 1962. A capital exec heard these songs, and took them with him to play during meetings when things were getting too heated or stale as a bit of comic relief. Eventually, in 1966, Capitol decided to record and release an album by Mrs. Miller, who was 59 years old at the time, which ended up being called Mrs. Miller's Greatest Hits. The public ate it up, and it sold more than 250,000 copies in only three weeks, and reached number 15 on the Billboard charts, and number one in our hearts. As horrible as the songs are, Mrs. Miller sings with sincere verve and out-of-tune gusto. 
That's what makes the album more than just a novelty. Not only was Mrs. Miller's singing atrocious, but even her tempo was a complete disaster. She claimed later on that she was presented with songs she didn't know and would record several takes, but the label only ever used very early takes before she was comfortable with the songs. She didn't want to be a joke and thought that Capitol had initially signed her as a serious singer, but the fame that came with it allowed her to travel and play to large crowds and even appear on shows like Ed Sullivan and Johnny Carson. Capitol ended up releasing two more Mrs. Miller albums over the next year, though neither of those made much of an impact. The joke had run its course. By that point, Miller no longer wanted to be that joke, and Capitol no longer wanted to not make money, so they parted ways. Miller recorded one more album on her own Amaret label in 1969. This final record was all novelty from start to finish, full of silly sex and drug references. The earlier verb and gusto that she had had just simply run away. She brought you a thrill that's new, but they say she's not for you. Though at the time she filled me. Now, this last record, did she know that she was making a naughty record or whatever? I mean, she's serving up brownies on the cover, like pot brownies or something. Does she have any idea? She knew at that point. I don't know why she claims that she left Capitol to go on to a serious musical career. She wanted to take vocal lessons and start singing opera. But then she comes back and makes this. It wasn't just some producer having a having a joke with her or anything. I don't think so. I think by that point, she wasn't quite as easily taken advantage of. I think her naivete had passed a little bit. Gotcha. What could possibly be more demented than subjecting orphans to terrible music? How about the aged and infirm? That's exactly what alleged singer Wing Han Sang, a.k.a. Wing, did. From there, someone encouraged her to record an album and... Oh, what an album it is. Here's just a little nibble of the title track to her first record, Phantom of the Opera. Inside my mind. Sing once again with me out If you couldn't tell from her accent, Wing is a Kiwi and sings like a bird being shoved into a paper shredder. <laughs> from there, she self-released an exhausting number of tribute albums to bands like the Beatles, ACDC, the Carpenters, and Elvis Presley. Wing became a sensation after making a voice cameo on South Park. From there, she took fans beneath her wing and soared to internet fame. 
She fits in nicely with Mrs. Miller. She sings because she has a legitimate love of singing. The reaction of her audience may not be what she originally intended, but she was able to sing to crowds all around the world. And while elevating musical awkwardness to greater heights has been instigated for commercial gains, chasing fame, or even just dumb luck, sometimes it's simply destiny. When Austin Wiggins was 17, his mom looked at his palm. The old woman believed she had gypsy blood and the power of vision. She made three predictions for her son's future. First, that he would marry a strawberry blonde woman. Second, that he would have two sons shortly after her death. And third, that he would also have daughters who would change the course of popular music. Turns out Mrs. Wiggins' prophecies were dead on. After marrying that strawberry blonde and having a couple boys after his fortune-telling mama caravanned into the great beyond, Austin knew that the time was nigh for his girls to fulfill what was written in the lines of his hands. He saw the sudden success of the Beatles as a further omen that rock and roll was his golden road. So he scraped some money together to buy some Kmart-quality instruments and instructed Dot, Betty, and Helen to become the world's greatest rock band. The teen girls from the forgotten small town of Fremont, New Hampshire, had no musical training. In fact, they had no real exposure to music at all, since their controlling father wouldn't allow rock music in the house. He expected the girls to start writing songs and play live immediately. He dropped them out of school and started forcing regular practice sessions and calisthenics in the basement. He named his family band the Shags after the popular carpet style and the most adorable type of dog hair. Austin almost immediately had the girls playing out where they were met with less than friendly crowds, heckling and throwing trash and garbage and soda cans. They, by all accounts, hated playing live, but continued to do almost weekly shows for years. This was their social life, never spending any time outside their insular family band. Unlike Florence Foster Jenkins, the Wiggins sisters had no interest at all in music. They certainly didn't sign up to be thrown on a stage to be mocked and gawked at. This wasn't folk art or musical experimentation. This isn't rock music distilled into its purest form. This is the sound of kids just trying to get by. It's compelling and twisted and beautiful in its own way, but there is an unfortunate air of authoritarianism, exploitation, and exhaustion that hangs over the sound. That's not to say that it isn't brilliant in its naivete and innocence. The lyrics sport a coming-of-age pathos, and there's a surrealistic method to the madness in the playing. Dot and Betty's guitars were cosmically linked, in tune with each other but completely alien to the concept of music. Like twins who invented their own language, but that language is only swear words, and they couldn't even understand each other. Helen's drumming, however, 
is totally untethered to the rest of the band, with rhythmic randomness like a roll of quarters thrown into a spinning dryer that's thrown into a cement mixer truck that's driving off a cliff. The lyrical subject matter is too microcosmic in scope, but it's universal in the philosophy of the world. Everyone can relate to the existential plight of a missing double amputee cat, like they sing about in My Pal Foot Foot. Or how about the stymied rebellion in Who Are Parents? Or the danger and pleasure of reckless driving in that little sports car? It's like reading Crash by J.D. Ballard. It's more like reading Crash by Petey Eastman. The Shag songs can only have been written by the Shags. They weren't impressions or copies. More like diary entries that you know your parents will read. Austin took his life savings to a recording studio in Boston. A friendly engineer suggested he save his money for when they were a bit more polished. But Austin wanted them to be recorded while they were, in his words, hot. The resulting album, 1969's Philosophy of the World, had 1,000 copies pressed on a fly-by-night label called Third World Records by a man who only delivered 100 of those 1,000 to the Wigginses and likely trashed the rest if they were even pressed at all. These were sent to local radio stations to little fanfare. The band still played out regularly, and a slightly more polished recording session was produced in 1975. Austin passed away, the band called it quits, and the sisters Wiggins went on to live normal lives. The story of the Shags rise from unknown amateurs to the world's most famous outsider musicians with the most sought-after private press record is very well trodden. In fact, the Shags act almost as a touchstone for burgeoning hipsters to show their open-mindedness. It's almost impossible to hear about them without the mention of more famous people and pop culture entities giving their blessings to their art. Dr. Demento, NRBQ, Frank Zappa, Lester Bangs, Kurt Cobain, the Gilmore Girls, Empire Records. Their story seems to be incomplete without the justification of their brilliance ex post facto, and sadly, a lot of that is for entry in the cult of cool. In many ways, who likes the band seems to be more relevant than the band itself. But there's no doubt the album needs to be heard, studied, and appreciated. It might be the most significant case of where bad music has been transformed by the fans into true art. The Wiggins seem to still live in this limbo where they have no idea why there is this gravitational pull toward music they didn't enjoy making in the 60s. Still, they have some reunion shows and Dot has put some really great solo stuff out. Faster and faster, I go by the minute. Hotter and hotter, I almost hit it. Stop 
nice to see how they've embraced their small sliver of recognition as pop culture heroines reclaiming music that they didn't fully get to enjoy when they first made it. Meanwhile, in an art school in London, competition day had arrived for the 13-member orchestra who had been practicing every day for a week, preparing diligently for their turn and a chance at winning. Though a few members hadn't been professional musicians by any stretch, there also contained legitimate professionals to help guide and pull them along across the finish line. They were to play one piece in its entirety. When their turn arrives for their performance, they all take their seats, fumble around a bit, placing sheets on music stands and pulling instruments from cases. They patiently wait for their conductor, the person who created this talent show, to take his place, baton in hand. His hands lift in the air and pause as the musicians take their marks. And then, pure cacophony is expelled from the stage in seemingly involuntary spasmodic burst. An orchestral sneeze. As the oral shock settles, a recognizable melody can be faintly heard swimming around between all the notes and near notes and off notes and noise. It's the William Tell Overture, as if it were being played by a middle school band who learned the tune from remembering the theme to The Lone Ranger. It was a disaster. The crowd couldn't help but burst into fits of laughter. At first uncomfortable, feeling guilty about the possible emotional damage they might cause. But then, as it became clear that every other listener was also struggling to stifle their chuckles, they all let their giggles run free. The band soldiered on as if the crowd weren't even there. So focused were they in their art. When the piece was completed, the crowd erupted in applause and cheers and glee. The band, most of whom were perspiring profusely by this point, their nerves now relinquished, stood, bowed, and solemnly left the stage. They'd lost the competition. The orchestra continued on, however, going by the name Portsmouth Symphonia. That competition took place in 1970 and was the brainchild of composer Gavin Bryars, who had been lecturing at St. Martin's School of Art that semester. What was the point? That might best be described by Michael Nyman when discussing an episode of composer Charles Ives' childhood. He said, His father would encourage him to listen to a stonemason singing really out of tune, says Nyman. And he would say, 
Don't listen to the wrong notes. Just listen to the passion. Listen to the seriousness. Listen to the performance. Portsmouth Sinfonia was a serious orchestra. They were attempting to play the William Tell Overture as best they could. The reason it was such a monstrosity was due to the rules set forth by Briars when putting the orchestra together. Anyone could join, but if you were already familiar with an instrument, you should not be playing it. This led to Brian Eno, who joined after that competition, to be playing the clarinet. Michael Nyman joined the band during the intermission of a concert by asking Briars if they had a spare instrument for him to play. He played cello during the second part of that show. Two other rules for the group completed the philosophy of the band. Players had to attend every practice, and they were never allowed to play poorly on purpose. It was most important to play each piece with the utmost sincerity. For those with no musical background, they relied on those who had to maintain the melody for them to keep up with, catch up to, or wait for. What occurred wasn't the awkwardness of attending a middle school concert with students making mistakes here and there individually. This was all musicians making mistakes almost all of the time, which in turn created what some consider important experimental art. This idea is not dissimilar from what the Fluxus artists attempted not long before this, to joyfully make serious art. Portsmouth Sinfonia was able to play further concerts through the 70s, increasing their members from 13 to as many as 50 at times. They even played a sold-out performance at the Royal Albert Hall. The reaction was extreme. Those who enjoyed it, loved it, and found it to be either hilarious or beautiful or both. Rolling Stone even declared their 1974 debut album, produced by Eno, to be the comedy album of the year. Those that didn't care for the new treatments of well-known music hated it. These were generally the hoity-toity classical music elite who embraced harmony and rejected dissonance. They steamed about the insults to Beethoven, Strauss, and others, with a cease-and-desist order being served by the publishers of one of Strauss's works. The case never made it to court. The self-proclaimed worst orchestra in the world went on to release a live album a year after their debut, and then continued on but only playing live concerts for a few years. In 1979, the world was subjected to an album by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra called Hooked on Classics. It was a worldwide hit. Portsmouth Sinfonia reconvened in the studio in an effort to reclaim their title of Worst Orchestra and released their final album, 1979's 20 Classic Rock Classics. To this day, no one can say with any certainty which was worse.
think if uh, Portsmouth Sinfonia played backed up uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, it would have just accidentally matched up? It'd be like a the broken clock, but <laughs> if it had just been smashed to pieces by a rock. A clock that's been destroyed by grenade is not right twice a day. <laughs> In the post-shags world, there's been an expansion of means to connect with outsider artists, creating small cults of fans devoted to their weirdness. Especially in the internet age, crazy MP3s and viral videos spread, helping unknown masses and occasional patrons who will find tangible ways of distributing their art and providing them their just financial desserts. Take Wesley Willis, the underground artist and songwriter whose formulaic MC stylings and documented struggles with consumerism and mental illness eventually propelled him to release numerous records with other rock stars and and be profiled on MTV. McDonald's hamburgers are the worst. They are worse than Burger King. A Big Mac has 26 grams of fat. A quarter pounder has 28 grams of fat. Rock and roll McDonald's! Rock and roll McDonald's! Rock and roll McDonald's! Rock and roll McDonald's! Rock over London, rock on Chicago. Wheaties, Drivers of Champions. Or Jan Terry, whose passion to push endearingly bad cheese rock songs, often with hilariously lo fi videos, made her a cult music legend opening for super swell guy Marilyn Manson and getting millions of views on YouTube. And there's countless other examples of those who clearly have a unique vision for their music that is so outside the mainstream that the only path seemed to be through an excited fan base, rather than a bottom-line-focused label. But then again, major labels, like with Mrs. Miller, aren't afraid of using flash-in-the-pan sensations to churn out a few bucks. See American Idol reject William Hung as an example of how novelty, some vague racism, and mass ridicule can work in a capitalist system. To Hunk's credit, he used his fame to become a motivational speaker focusing on turning failure into success, which is pretty much the main focus of our entire podcast. The danger of these alternative paths to fame is that they still fall prey to the paradox of every off-center entertainer who came before them. Are they simply being laughed at? 
Is the enjoyment merely ironic or worse, mocked? Or does it even matter if they're happy in their art and occupation? There's always a trade-off with fame, especially when musicians are bearing their souls for people who really only care about their own detached amusement. What is to give light must endure burning. The artists discussed today were certainly burned up and burnt out, but you have to appreciate their self-confidence and ability to bring joy to the audience and themselves. They didn't ascribe to the whole, it's so bad it's good, Maxim, and for that matter, we don't either. And really, everything about this episode just goes back to that Charles Ives story. Listen to how the person is singing. Listen to the passion that they're singing with. That's really what's most important. thing with with all this music is that it really is a lot of fun and i think for the most part maybe other than the shags everybody who's making the music seemed to really love making the music and so at the end of the day i guess that's all that really matters absolutely maybe the reaction is depressing for a while but at some point or on some level they might really enjoy that they are doing what they love and making some money at it well, there's got to be hundreds of terrible bands that take themselves totally serious. and The Eagles? Yeah. People actually like them. <laughs> They're terrible. I would rather listen to Mrs. Miller every day than ever listen to Hotel California again. That's a hot take right there. But I think I'm with you. If you want to hear or read about more things like this, a lot of the information I got or we got was from a website called The World's Worst Records. And the guy who runs that site is Daryl Bullock. He also has a show on WFMU. And he has a, a couple books out. One of them is on the Cherry Sisters. And one is on the world's worst singers, the worst singers of all time, I think. And that book is really good. Yeah, it's great. Another person to look up if you're interested in this is Erwin Chusid, who we've he comes up fairly frequently, um, especially when we're talking about private press or, or real people music. But he did a book and CD compilation called Songs in the Key of Z, all about outsider artists. And there's a lot of over overlap with private press, too, with, and, and song poems as far as like these musicians in their, in their styles. But his work is, is really great too. So if you're interested in this and it's, it is a fun topic and it's really what we weren't expecting is getting into audience reaction. How interesting that was like, what was the audience thinking? How did this develop into a thing? And it's like a lot of stuff we cover on the show where it seems like there's just this one magic moment that just kind of takes off. And then from there there's, little tendrils that go out and people try to copy it. And Florence Foster Jenkins and Mrs. Miller were definitely the most famous of these bad musicians who got famous. And there's many imitators from there. If you just need a smile and who doesn't after the last year or so or four years or whatever it was, <laughs> it's very easy to get that smile by going on YouTube and just listening to a few of these. They're really, really fun. Do you, have, do you have any of the records? 
I do have a compilation put out on Trunk Records that happens to have a Leona Anderson song on it, but that's it. Actually, I have the Shags record. Yeah, I have the Shags record too. Are the Mrs. Miller records expensive? No, they're super cheap. They should be in dollar bins all over. Yeah, the Florence Foster Jenkins, those later albums are not super expensive, but they're not super common either. The Madame St. Ong is really hard to get, really expensive, I think. And the Sam Sachs one is also really expensive. Yeah, it's a great cover. He introduces himself at the beginning of every single song. (laughs) It's really funny. I think it's about time that we play some songs. Sounds good to me. All right, uh, I'm going to start today, and I am actually going to play something by the Shags. I'm going to play a song called Sweet Maria. Sweet Maria uh, by the Shags. Just a cover. They didn't write it. But this was not from Philosophy of the World. This is from that 1975 session that came out uh, much later. And I have it on a single that was put out by Light in the Attic for uh, 2016 Record Store Day. It has Sweet Maria and then Missouri Waltz is the B-side. It's an interesting song. I played it because 
this is probably my only opportunity to play this on the show, but also because it shows this strange progression, how they still kind of had that insular sound, but they were starting to kind of get it together and just find their own vibe. The drums are still all over the place, but it's really kind of a woozy, pretty song in its own way. There's something about the Shags that is very nebulous as far as why it sounds so good. And I think some of that is just because we think it should sound good because it's such a cool story. But I also think there's something about that sound that really locks you in. And you can see that a little bit more with these later later records. It was a B-side to the 1975 collection. I think it's called Shag's Own Thing. And these are just a couple couple extra tracks that never got put out. And then the NRBQ guy, I forget his names, but he's the one who kind of picked picked out these songs to get released on the single. So uh, I know we talked a lot about the Shags, but I thought, you know, it's a pretty cool song. And I'd like to play it for y'all. Yeah, that 1975 album, the songs on there feel a lot more magnetic, easier to be pulled in by those. Yes, yes. It's more polished, but that's not to say that it sounds anything like anything else. All right. My first song is by Crispin Hellion Glover, and the song is called Clowny Clown Clown. <laughs> I was walking on the ground, I didn't make a sound, then I turned around and I saw a clown. Mr. Far? Clown. 
<coughs> See what a cigar will do? <laughs> clown. All right, that was Crispin Glover with Clowny Clown Clown, an original. He wrote that. And that is from his 1989 album, The Big Problem Does Not Equal the Solution, The Solution Equals Let It Be. And that was on Restless Records. That album itself is incredible. It's sort of split into two parts. The first side of the album is songs, and the second side is readings from his books, Oak, Mott, and Rat Catching. And they are incredibly bizarre. That one is one of the stranger ones, I I think. It's got kind of a carnivalish sound with that calliope and those the drum machine. And the story itself of the song is obviously about him discovering a clown and becoming friends with it. And eventually discovering after the death of the clown that maybe he wasn't as happy as he thought he was. No, that old chestnut of a story. Yeah, and then he, like the line, thinking back about those days with the clown, I get teary-eyed and really snide. Think that deep (laughs) down, I hated that clown. (laughs) Pretty deep. The album was produced by Barnes & Barnes, who were famous for Fish Heads, which I think I played on uh, early on in the podcast, probably. Uh, Weird Al is on the record, which I didn't know until a few days ago when I was researching this. I didn't ever, I never saw his name. Wow. In the crazy. So I never noticed them. Yeah. And I think he was probably on this song. This one sounds most like something he would have been on. The album cover has information about the solution equals let it be. And the big problem does not equal the solution. This is really something that I don't know if this guy's serious or not. I know he's a little odd, obviously. Uh, but on the album cover, it says, All words and lyrics point to the big problem. The solution lay within the title, let it be. Crispin Hellion Glover wants to know what you think these nine things all have in common. He even included at the end of that his home phone number, which was active until 2007. Apparently every once in a while he would answer it. I did not have that luck. How many times did you try to call Crispin Glover? Probably just once just to see if it was a real phone number. It's an interesting album. It's got covers on the first side. He does um, a few different covers. One of them I won't say, um, but he he covers a Lee Hazelwood song, a Charles Manson song. He does The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze. And then he has a few originals. And then the second side is readings from his books. He even did tours for a long time. And you could go see him present a slideshow and movie art show and i went and saw one when i was living in colorado and it was in denver it was one of the strangest things i've ever seen i was very very glad i got to see it but he's really weird guy i mean everything i've heard from the album was pretty great but it's like nothing you'll ever hear but it just kind of draws you in all right the next song i'm gonna play is by a band called fuchsia and it is called Our lips are sealed.
All right, that was Fuchsia with the song Our Lips Are Sealed, the cover of the Go-Go song. And that's from 2011, and it's on Rocket Girl Records. I actually have the 7-inch, where the B-side is a Dean and Britta song called Crystal Blue R.I.P., and it's a song that Fuchsia actually remixed. Uh, The song also appeared on Fuchsia's 2012 album, Electric Sound of Summer, which is an album that came out like several years after their previous release. So they took kind of a long break. They actually formed in 1994, and the main person who formed the band, Randall Neiman, was he was in the band Windy and Carl. It was one of my favorite bands. So they're a Detroit band. Windy and Carl, were, or they're still active too. Um, they are kind of an ambient-ish band, and they are amazing. Um, everybody should go check them out. Fuchsia also released split singles early on with Stereo Lab and Martin Rev. So they're very clearly uh, suicide fans. They even were the backing band on one of Martin Rev's solo albums. He's just an enormous influence on Neiman um, and the other founder of the band, Ryan Anderson. If you are ever interested in looking up this band, the band's name is spelled F-U-X-A. So it's the most pretentious spelling of a band name you can imagine, but they're pretty good, despite that. All right, I'm going to play the last song for today. This is Mr. Roger Miller with a song called What are those things with big black wings? What are those things with big black wings Circling, descending from up overhead Lie to me, tell me that they're only robins Tell me that your love for me will never be dead Today all the rooms in our home feel like strangers I wonder what makes me feel so out of place And why have you suddenly emptied your closets And why can't you look me in the face What are those things with big black wings Circling, descending from up overhead Lie to me, tell me that they're only robins Tell me that your love for me will never be dead You faithfully promised me you'd never leave me You told me your heart had no room for goodbyes But tell me what makes all this distance between us And who put that leaving in your eyes What are those things with big black wings Circling, descending from up overhead Lie to me, tell me that they're only robins Tell me that your love for me will never be dead What are those things with big black wings Circling, descending from up overhead That song was What Are Those Things with Big Black Wings by Mr. Roger Miller. I recently got that song on a Mississippi Records 
best of compilation. He, the guy from Mississippi records made some, uh, compilations of his favorite songs from the mixtapes and put them out on vinyl for the community supported record club that Joe and I both are members of. And I heard that song and then I had one of those moments where I got up after it was done and I took the needle off the record and I just played it again and I did it twice. It is such an amazingly cool song. It has never been released on vinyl until, as far as we know, until this. And it's on a compilation called The Whole World is Gay by Mississippi Records. Now, the song itself, I don't have a lot of information on it. Uh, in 1968, Charlie Leuven put it out as a single on Capitol. It's written by Dallas Frazier and A.L. Owens. It's a song where I just think it can speak for itself as far as <laughs> as far as what it's about. It's great. It's kind of sinister, kind of creepy, but also kind of sad. And also, it's Roger Miller, so it's also really peppy and happy. It's everything I like in a song, all, all in one, all in one two-minute package. Joe, you have anything to add? I know you like the song a lot, too. I love this song. Yeah, it was... Uh, totally unissued. It hadn't been on vinyl, and its first release was part of the box set. I think it was King of the Road, the four-CD yeah. box set in the late 90s for Roger Miller, and that's the first time um, that I ever heard it, and it just blew me away then. Still does. I don't usually talk about like favorite songs, but it's certainly my favorite song this month. Yeah, And that community-supported record club, if you can get in, I, if there's spots open... You should. It's it's great. Uh, you pretty much get everything Mississippi sends or releases. Uh, they'll send it to you. You just kind of keep some money put in there. Um, it's a great way to support a fantastic record label that puts out music that you will not hear anywhere else. So strongly encourage you to do that. We've ta- we talk about Mississippi Records all the time, but you should definitely join their community-supported record club. And so I think we just need to settle up on some trivia. Yep, let's wrap this up. So what is going on with this trivia is, again, I have nine clips of music. Each of these clips was made by a celebrity. So there's a celebrity or pseudo-celebrity singing. And all I want you to do is tell me who the celebrity is. If you know the song... That's great. Let me know. If you know the album, that's even better, I think. But really, I just want you to tell me the name of the artist. Well, artist. I want you to tell me the name of the person singing. Sorry. (laughs) All right, here we go. Track one. Track two. The colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky It's also on the faces Of people passing by Track three When the girls start to strut You could look at them But you shouldn't do that The girl dress is just a pity Not just there to cover her kitty when me a fling it up, you better know to back it up. When me a dash it up, make sure you black it up. Track four. It takes all kind to help you find confidence in yourself. You can count on some as a rule of thumb, but most you can't depend. When things get hot and you're in a spot, your parents are your friends. Track five. <laughs> Track 
I wonder why nobody don't like me. Oh, is it the fact that I'm ugly? I wonder why nobody don't like me. Oh, is it the fact that I'm ugly? I leave my own house and go. My children don't want me no Track more. six. You keep saying you got something for me. And something you call love, but confess. You've been a mess where you should have been a mess. And now someone else. Track seven. Does a man have to fight all his life? Only in death to take flight to the skies. Warmongers fly to take my throne. Track eight. Track nine. I don't mind the morning light. I love it shining down on me. But there's something about the night. It feels so right. Just you. Right, that was nine pretty Ooh. hopefully short enough clips and we can go through those tell me which ones you think you have okay i think i got the first one i think that's bruce willis under the boardwalk correct do you know the name of the album uh is it it's like bruno returns or bruno something i remember it from the cd store the return of bruno okay, Ni- okay. 1987 that's like one of the most legendary of actors turned singer albums, I think. Yep. The second one, it's What a Wonderful World. I have no idea who it is. It kind of sounds like Mel Brooks to me. It's Joe Pesci. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do you remember the My Cousin Vinny movie? Uh-huh. He put out an album after that, well after that, I think. And the album is called Vincent LaGuardia Gambini Sings Just For You. So he sang the album in the... My cousin Vinny persona for the whole thing. And it is what a wonderful world. He actually was a singer. He put out a real album, a legitimate album in the fifties or sixties. And it's pretty good. It's more of a kind of Frank Sinatra style of singing, but he's, he's got a really good voice when he wants to, when he wants to, but that's just sort of a, sort of a, co- a comedy one where yeah. he wasn't necessarily trying to be an amazing singer. Is it funny? Ha ha. It's Get Your Shine Box Funny. The third one, I don't have any clue. This is probably the toughest one on here. That's Steven Seagal with a song called Strut. And the album he released in 2005 that that's from is called Songs from the Crystal Cave. I think the fourth one is Mr. T. It is. It's Mr. T. All right. I don't know the song. 
The song is called Mr. T's Commandments, and it's a, <laughs> it, that's also the name of the album he released in 1984. Number five, Don't Know. This is one I used to put on mixtapes a lot. This is Robert Mitchum with a song called Mama Look, A Boo Boo, from his album Calypso Is Like So, and that was released in 1957. I see. I, you might have put that on a mix for me or something. I... I had in my head that it was an old, older actor, and I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't pull it, and I honestly didn't try hard enough. But that was one of the songs I enjoyed more. The whole album is really fun. He's got some good, good songs on there. I think it's very easy to enjoy that one. All right, six is Crispin Glover with "These Boots Are Made for Walking." We just talked about that. Hopefully, a nice, easy one for everybody. At least the song title. Another good version of that. Number seven. This one I know pretty well because I've I've researched it before. I think it's Christopher Lee. It is. I think the album is called Heavy Metal, and the song is something about Saxons. I, I I've seen the video somewhat recently when I was I forget what I was researching for the show, but it's something about Saxons, and I think the album was called Heavy Metal. I think it was for the Hobbit stuff that we did, right? Oh, maybe maybe that could have been it. Yeah. Um, the, the song is called Massacre of the Saxons, and the Ooh, album yes. is actually called Charlemagne, the Omens of Death from 2010. Okay, okay, cool. I love Christopher Lee. He's my favorite actor, or was. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's possibly the most interesting person ever. Okay, number eight. I think that's that Eddie Murphy song, Party All the Time. It is, yep. Okay, yeah. That was, that was sort of a hit, right? It was, it was a pretty big hit. All right, and the ninth song I do not know. That is David Hasselhoff with a song called Night Rocker from his album Night Rocker. (laughs) That was a fun quiz. I enjoyed that thoroughly. I wish I would have got some more. I should have got, I should have at least got uh, Hasselhoff, I think. His voice doesn't sound like his talking voice or acting voice to me at all when he's singing. So there's, I wouldn't have gotten that. I think you got the same ones I would have gotten. Hey Joe. Yes. Do you I can't confirm this. But do you know if David Hasselhoff has to put his incredibly smooth singing and or talking voice onto a podcast, you know what product he uses? I think I have an idea. Why don't you tell us more about this? Well, again, I can't confirm, but I suspect just based on his quality of everything he does. <laughs> Based on his history of high quality advertisements and and shows, just general general output, I'm guessing that he would use an AKG Lyra USB microphone. That's what many of the uh, the world's top lifeguards slash actors slash night riders use when recording podcasts or songs. It's super easy to use. You just plug it in. It works. And, uh, you know, they've been very nice to help uh, sponsor our show. If you're wondering what uh, makes my bad music sound so good, it's the AKG. It's the Lyra. That's why my voice is so silky smooth. It's the talking car of microphones. Yes. Yes, it's the kit. And it comes in a kit. It comes in a podcast kit that has some headphones, um, high-quality 
studio level headphones. So anyways, we just want to thank AKG for, for helping out the podcast. They've got a partnership with Pantheon, our podcast network, and we appreciate them supporting even a small, strange podcast like ours. So if you are looking to get into podcast, or if you are David Hasselhoff and you want to start a podcast, get yourself an AKG Lyra Podcaster Essential Kit. You will not regret it. Unlike many other <laughs> your decisions in life. Yeah, and so I mentioned Pantheon Podcast. We are part of that network. Uh, great network, lots of cool shows. In fact, I think they have a whole show about bad music called Make It Stop. Uh, Make It Stop Podcast. That's more about commercially released music that thinks it's good. It's just actually bad. But uh, check that out if you're into bad music, if you're just a bad music enthusiast that happened upon our podcast. There's a whole show about it on Pantheon and lots of other shows about good music, too. It seems like they've got almost 100 podcasts now. I don't know. It's crazy how fast it's growing. Yeah, it's growing fast and just picking up really cool people, too. Whatever your interest is, there's something for you, as long as you like music. If you don't like music, you're you're kind of out of luck with it. But music lovers, it's, it's your place to go. If you get a chance, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, our handle is... Highway Hi-Fi Pod. On Facebook, we have a page that is very easy to find. And if you would like, send us an email. Our email address is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. It's been kind of quiet lately. I think it might have something to <laughs> with us doing like bagpipes and <laughs> bad music. People just aren't reaching out like they used to. We love when we get to uh, hear from people who, who love weirdness like we do so we appreciate everybody who listens if you do have a little bit of extra scratch um help somebody out you know we um feel strongly that we would prefer that if you enjoy this that you go out and seek somebody who's making great music and support them or provide or putting out great music a record label or a band or a independent record shop something like that so Please, if you do have some extra money, stimulus check or whatever, treat yourself to some music. We appreciate y'all listening, and we will see you next time. And hey, free cabbage. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 